The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir. The names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. Hello and welcome to The Dark Word. I am your host, Philip Fricasi, and I'm very excited today to have the legendary editor, Ellen Datlow, with me to talk about anthologies and writing and all sorts of good stuff that you writers will want to hear. So stay tuned for the next 30 minutes. Uh, Ellen has been editing science fiction, fantasy and horror short fiction for over 35 years as a fiction editor of Omni Magazine and editor of Event Horizon and Sci Fiction. She currently acquires short fiction for Tor.com. In addition, she's edited more than 100 science fiction, fantasy, and horror anthologies, including the annual Best of the Year. She's won multiple World Fantasy Awards, Locus Awards, Hugo Awards, Stoker Awards, International Horror Guild Awards, Shirley Jackson Awards, and was the recipient of the 2007 Carl Edward Wagner Award, given at the British Fantasy Convention. She was also honored with the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Horror Writers Association, as well as the World Fantasy Life Achievement Award at the 2014 World Fantasy Convention. She lives in New York and co-hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction Reading Series at KGB Bar. More information can be found at www.datlow.com. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so as you probably know, this is a podcast specifically for writers. And what I thought as we've had some writers on and, and talking to a lot of the folks that are in many of your anthologies and, uh, people like Laird Barron and Stephen Graham Jones and Christopher Golden, but I wanted to get you on specifically, cause I really wanted to talk to two forks of who's out there listening. One is to maybe future editors or anthologists about some of the tips uh, and tricks that you utilize over the years, and then also to the writers who may be looking to get some tips uh, for submitting to anthologists and editors like yourself. But let's start with the anthology. So one thing that always interested me was the process for getting an anthology from idea to print. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how you go about your process of coming up with an idea to actually pitching it to a publisher and getting it, you know, made. Well, it depends on the anthology and it depends on the publisher. Um, generally, I'll come up with something that I'm interested in and then I'll consider who I might want in the book, who might what writers might work for the anthology. Now, of course, there's a difference between original anthologies and reprint anthologies, but let's talk about originals. Right. First, I'll talk it up to editors at publishing houses who I know or who have published me before, and I'll see if they're at all interested. And if they are, I'll send them a proposal, which is not usually that detailed if I've worked with them. Um, if it's something that my agent thinks could sell to a different publishers who I haven't worked with, then I'll have to do a, a write-up of a more detailed proposal. I mean, Lisa Morton and I have done that a few times for 
anthology, the anthology, for example, that we edited for um, HWA, Haunted, oh my God, I've done too many Haunted things. Uh, Haunted Nights, that one was called. So we had, we did actually detailed, a detailed pitch saying who we would get for it, who these people were. But generally, I don't go in that that much detail um, because most of the publishers I work with know the writers who I will probably get. Right. Some publishers will quote unquote demand certain writers or at least certain writers, like four out of six of these people. And of course, they always want the biggest names. And I always say you can't get the biggest names. Dean Kuntz, if you want to pay him 50000 a story, he maybe he'll write one for you because he writes them for Amazon Kindle. Stephen King is not going to write a story for me. Peter Straub is hardly writing at all these days. Yeah, and Clive Barker is not writing much short fiction. So, I mean, those are the names that they usually ask for. And I said, forget it. You know, it's like, I'm not even, you know, no, there's no point. But beyond that, you know, I'll go after the writers who I think I would like in the book as a first. And if I get interest in those writers, then I will put the, the quote unquote names, not the huge names, but the names who I think could sell the book and tell them to the publisher. And I will approach publishers myself and my agent will sometimes approach publishers. If my agent is doing it, then she won't know whether she does it or not, whether she approaches the publisher or not, she does the deal. You know, if I have an agent, uh, sorry, if I have an editor interested in a book, I'll say, okay, I like, that's a good idea. You know, I'm glad we're on the same page. Can you please talk to my agent now, Marilee Heifetz? She'll do that and, you know, she knows what I expect and we talk about money and blah, blah, blah. So that's basically how you start it. But from the beginning, from the idea to the actual publication of an anthology, it would take two or three years. Because the thing is, I usually require at least, I would try to get a year for my authors to get stories in. And that, and I will not ask them for the actual stories to say, okay, we've sold this until it's, I actually have a contract or a verbal agreement with the publisher. So at that point, I can start going after the writers who I talked to already and said, okay, you can write the story now. This is what I'm paying. And this is when it's due. And I try to give them about 10 months to a year or more to write the story. <clears throat> Once the stories come in, I have to edit them. Uh, I'll edit each one as it comes in, if I decide to take it. I mean, sometimes I don't, I don't, I do reject stories that I've solicited. If I don't think the story is good for the anthology or I don't think it's terrific or whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I have to edit the stories and put them together and then I give it to the publisher. And then within a year and maybe less, it depends, the publisher will put get the book out in print. They need time to do publicity and marketing and do the cover and get the salespeople to sell the book to the public or rather to the booksellers who will hopefully sell it to the public. So that's why it takes so long with traditional publishing. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing because it, it means that the publisher is actually trying to create a market for the book. I mean, that's the downside of being an independent self-publishing because you have to do everything yourself. If you're working with a publisher, that's their job. And yes, I will try to do as much marketing as I can on my own social media, but I expect them to send out the review copies. I expect them to do something, at least trying to get help or work with me to get interviews and things like that. Right. It's interesting. So you come up with the idea and then you, you approach your, you know, you have a stable of writers who you rely on and they all say, yes, we're interested or no, we're not interested. And then you take that and that becomes part of your pitch where then you go to the publisher and you say, this is the idea. And these are the writers who have verbally committed. 
Yes, but I also say that I have to say that they're interested. I do never guarantee that a writer is going to write something for me. Right. You just don't know. As a writer, you know that. Things happen. Yeah. And I may not want to take the story for whatever reason. So I never guarantee. Now, when I did uh, When Things Get Dark, the Shirley Jackson anthology, I did that for Titan. And they we agreed on certain a certain number of writers, New York Times bestsellers, who would be in the book. But see, that's not that hard because I work with people who have become bestsellers all the time. Paul Tremblay, um, Richard Cadry. These people have become bestsellers, even though maybe they're not, you know, the huge sellers, but they're on the New York Times bestseller list. And that's all I care about because that's what the publishers care about. So anyway, they might say, okay, we want four out of these eight writers. And I said, sure. Okay. I guess I can get Joyce Carol Oates probably. Yeah. And that gives you some wiggle room. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, I will never say, yes, I will definitely get these writers. I mean, that's ridiculous. I can't promise that. And, and also for what the publishers are paying me, it's kind of nervy for them to think that they can dictate the biggest names in the field when they're not paying that much. Yeah. That leads me kind of to my next question, which was, okay, so you have these, you have these call it eight writers who, um, of these eight, you're going to have to get, a, you're going to have to take at least four of those stories. So <clears throat> you're hoping that one, that hopefully all eight of those writers give you a story to consider. And two, that at least four of those stories have to be good enough in your mind for the anthology, hell or high water. You, they've got to have four, those four stories have to be in there, right? Per your agreement with the publisher. Well, unless or the there's also a caveat that I could also, if I can't get those writers, I have to get, quote unquote, the equivalent writers that we agree upon. Okay. So that's kind of a, what do you call it, an escape hatch. In fact, I mean, I had a problem years ago. I edited an anthology, Naked City, <clears throat> and I got a commitment from a writer, a bestseller, who was very temperamental. I never worked with her before. And she basically screwed me and screwed her agent. <laughs> She left her agent and she just disappeared. And and not only that, but my editor, my in-house editor was her editor and she didn't write the story. And she was someone who was, you know, huge seller. And so I had to figure out, luckily I figured out with my in-house editor and my agent, we figured out, I had to get like two or three other writers to make up for that one writer. And luckily I knew a few bestsellers at the time who I, this was a fantasy anthology really. So I had known someone, uh, Patty Briggs is a big bestseller now, Patricia Briggs, but I had published, Terry and I had published a story of hers in one of our fairy tale anthologies years before. And so I kind of had a contact with her and I begged her for a story and she wrote one and it was good. So I was lucky that I was able to go after a few people to make up for this one person who screwed us. (laughs) Who may or may not have written a Harry Potter book. <laughs> no, it wasn't Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wanted. To, okay, so let's talk about now the uh, the other half of the anthologies, and it kind of comes down, I know, to editor editorial preference. But a lot of writers are very curious about when you put together an anthology. Obviously, you need your stable of bestsellers so that the publisher is comfortable, and then, but then, do, and maybe it varies from book to book. But where do you land on how many um, how many invites versus submissions? What, like, is there a percentage you like to hit? Well, my stories are invites. I mean, I don't have open markets. So you don't, you never do deal with submissions. No, the only time I've had total open markets was when my co-editor wanted to do that. And we had someone else, either they, like Nick Mamatas said, okay, we can do, that was another haunted book, <laughs> Haunted Legends. Right. Um, he said he'd be willing to read. We had an open reading period for like, 
I, maybe a week or two. Yeah. And he said he would read all the submissions and he passed on like 20 or 30 to me, but it turns out they weren't from unknowns anyway. They were, I mean, I don't think any of them was from, I don't think any that we took were from people ne- neither of us had heard of, even though it was an open submission process at that point. And, um, for the HWA anthology, we had uh, HWA assign someone to read the submissions and passed on a bunch to us. But those are the only times I've done open markets, other than my reprint anthologies, you know, the year's best. Right, right. Yeah, because year's best, uh, obviously, you're getting submissions from everybody who whose book you may have, whose book or story you may have missed. Right. Um, I'm always open to everything for the year's best. As far as invitation, don't forget that because I've been in the field 40 years and have worked with all kinds of writers, like hundreds, I know many, many, many writers whose work I like. And so I can pick and choose. The thing is, once you publish someone a lot, there's something behind their brain thinking, oh, then I want to be in all your anthologies. And I said, I can't have you in all my anthologies. I can only fit 25 the most people in my anthologies and I can't have you in all the time. I want other people. So, you know, I do try to get a mix when I try to think of who would be right for this anthology or that anthology, that subject matter, that type of the tonal part of the anthology, you know, if it's a hard edged, you know, supernatural noir or something, who I think might be good at that. Uh, There are very few writers who I will approach about everything. But that doesn't mean serendipity doesn't work occasionally. And I never thought that Delia Sherman would write me an Edgar Allan Poe story, and she did. And it was very good. I think it was called The Red Piano. You know, so that's the serendipity part when I talk to people and they express an interest in something that I'm not necessarily doing an anthology about at the time, but I might be. And I say, oh, do you want to take a crack at it? But, they, you know, I'm hoping, I, I believe that 99.9% of the writers whose work I solicit know I'm not always going to take their stories because you know, I'm not commissioning them. That's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Let's say you make the deal with the publisher and then you go back to those writers who you've already spoken with and say, okay, here, you're writing the story and here's the the payment structure that the publisher has agreed to. Uh, if they write the story and you don't accept it, do they then do they not get paid? Yeah. No, they don't get paid because it's not a commission. It's a solicitation. Right. Okay. It sounds really, it's fascinating to me because I think there's a lot of, um, and you're on Twitter as much as, as I am. And I think you see a lot of these kind of like, uh, there's a lot of like anthologies bouncing around and, and of course you read a lot of them for your year's best. And, um, it's interesting because mm-hmm. I think when, when, if you're an anthologist, you know, and, and that's something that you want to do, you know, I think you can take what you're saying and kind of scale it back. Like to like, if you're pitching, say, you know, a smaller press or an independent press, I think the idea that you're saying, though, is still relevant, even though you're not talking about maybe a New York Times bestsellers. Absolutely. It's my job as an editor to turn things down. Right. I cannot take everything that I see. Just like for the year's best, you know, I see when I'm reading for the year's best, by the end of the year, I've got three times as many stories. I, what I do is I take notes I take and put an asterisk by a story that I'm interested in enough to want to reread it towards the end of the process. I'll contact the publisher or the author. I don't want to pub- I try not to contact the author because I don't want to have their hopes up if I don't take the right. story, but I try to contact the publisher and say, could you send me a doc file? I get rid of, I do not keep the magazines. I don't keep many anthologies, if any. I don't have room. So I just have the stories in a file that I like a lot. And towards the end of the process, I start rereading. And I start with like 
250,000 words. You know? Right, right. Um, and then I have to cut that down. I have to break that down to what I think is a viable anthology. So I'm rereading and, and eliminating, eliminating, eliminating. I mean, part of a, an editor job, you have to be able to turn things down. I mean, if you turn, if you accept everything, you're going to be a, sh- a lousy editor. Right. You know, because you have to make the decision, well, this doesn't work and I'm not going to take it for this project. Yeah. Your books tend to vary, I think, in word count. You know, the ones, the books that you've added, I know like you had that, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but you had that very big book that came out, I think, early last year. The Ghost Story Anthology. Yeah, the Ghost Stories. And is there a word count you like to hit or is it very wildly? I personally like to hit, I mean, usually the contract says 90,000 words or something like that. And I usually have, I'm comfortable with 110 to 115,000 words for an original anthology. But for example, with um, Echoes, my editor wanted a very big anthology. Mm-hmm. And to its detriment, it didn't sell as well as it could have because it was too big. And the book publishers, I'm sorry, the booksellers had trouble, didn't want to buy, you know, take on too many because it was so big. Right. So, you know, and it didn't have to be that big. I mean, I took three reprints, two, cl- two public domain that I could have dumped easily, you know, so it didn't have to be as big as it was. Now, the interesting thing about my monster one that's coming out, Screams from the Dark, the person who commissioned that anthology, Fritz Foy at Tour, I uh, sorry, at Nightfire, he said, I want a big, big, big anthology like the and like the Vandermeer, they said, no, no, you don't really, please. You really don't. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. You know? And not only that, the thing is the bigger it is, the harder it is to organize. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've discovered if I have like more than 21 or 22 stories, my gosh, it's, it's harder for me to remember each story. And I'm pretty good at remembering all the stories I've published, but when it's over a certain number in a book, it's hard for me to remember them. And also it's harder for me to put together the table of contents. Um, but anyway, Fritz was saying, yes, we want it big. I said, no, you don't want it that big because, you know, Echoes was too big. He said, oh, no, it's not an issue. We don't care. Um, it's going to be in print forever. It's going to sell academics. And then, of course, he quit Night Fight. He quit tour and retired. So I, you know, but so I, I but I said, okay, it's going to be a big book. It is not going to be as big as Echoes. I don't remember the, the difference in word lengths, but it's definitely smaller than Echoes. <laughs> Yeah, it's smaller than Echoes, but it's pretty it's pretty big. I they Nightfire asked me to blurb it. And so I read I read the you know the arc of it and uh it's pretty substantial. I think there's probably it's probably 20 stories in there though, right? 29 stories. And the word length is, I mean the total length, 205,700 words. <laughs> yeah. That's a big book. <laughs> yeah, but Echoes was like 260 or something was too soon. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Echoes is as big. I have the hardcover of Echoes and it looks nice on the shelf, though. It's, it's a nice beautiful, yellow spine. It's, a pain it's beautiful. Carry yeah. around. It's so heavy. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a pain for, uh, I can see why booksellers might be a little um, against it. But so, and going back to what you just said, though, I'm very curious. One of the questions that I talked to Laird Barron about when we, he and I spoke was um, when he comes up with the story collection, we talked a lot about story order. And I've, I've listened to interviews with you before where you've, t- you definitely have, um, you definitely have a philosophy on story order. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you decide an order for your, maybe first for your standard and your one-off anthologies and then if it applies to your best of series. It's the same with all of them. It's kind of, it's, it's more an intuition and instinct. I do have a philosophy about the first and last stories. Um, the rest kind of, 
could juggle. Mm-hmm. But the first story, in my opinion, should be for me, for my books, that it should be something accessible. You don't want something too weird. You don't want something too long. You want something that's going to draw the reader in and maybe give them an idea of what the book is going to encompass. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can't do that with a story, but you don't want to have a very weird story to begin with because you want to lose. If, if readers read first, you know, in order, which one has to assume because there's nothing else we can do as editors. <laughs> if they start with the first one, you don't want to lose them with the first story. So, you know, if you have something really strange, you put that later on once they're used to what's in the book. And the same thing with the last story, it needs to be a strong story. It may be the strongest story, maybe the longest story in the book. Once in a while, I've put a really, really, what I consider maybe the strongest story next to last. And then this, uh, like a grace note after that. Like a coda. Yeah. But it still has to be a strong story, you know, strong enough to not be disappointing, shall we say. That's why where, when you have 29 stories, it's hard to juggle because I have to remember that I have to keep opening the files and looking at the point, the tone, the point of view character, if they're similar in plot. And I try to vary all that. Um, you don't want like two 10,000 word stories one after another. You don't, you may not, either you want two stories that have a similar something, or you want to separate those stories if they have a similar thing, depending on, on the stories and what you feel like. <laughs> You know, sometimes two stories might complement each other, even though they they have a similar trajectory, but they're different enough that you might be willing to put them next to each other. One of the other things that Laird and I spoke about in story collections is a lot of times you'll you'll have the author. I'm talking about a single author story collection. A lot of times the author will be like, "Okay, at the end of the book is my brand new novella that you no one's read before, and it's like twenty five thousand words or whatever." And I never really understood the logic of having your big new story at the at the very end. Well, where would you put it otherwise? I would put it at the front person. I mean, that's me. No, because- no, no, because it's too long. No, I, I wouldn't do that ever. Because right. a novella at the first story is like really a commitment you're giving, you're making the reader right commit far too early. <laughs> and because you're doing it's a short story collection, you want them to be able to finish a story in one sitting. If you have a mm-hmm. novella, it's really hard. I mean, yes, of course, people read novellas in one sitting, but I think it's much more difficult to make that commitment so early in the book. My opinion. No, I, I agree with you, actually. I was, I was, I was, um, in my last collection, I, I, my, in my first collection, I had put my longest story at the end. And then in the, the one that came out this past uh, summer, I said, I didn't, I didn't want to put my long, it's not a novella, it's probably 10,000 words. I said, I want to put it at the beginning because I want people to read mm-hmm. it. You know, I didn't, I feel like by the time they get to the end, they may not, you know, they may not get all the way there, or get there quickly. But, but I understand what you're saying. I just picked up a story anthology and I don't remember a collection. I don't remember what it, what it is, but I, the first story is like 90 pages. And I was like, and I've picked up and put that book down three times because I just like, I'm like, I can't commit to, I can't commit right now. Oh right? yeah. No, I think it's <laughs> tough when you do that. Well, let's talk a little bit about writers and getting some advice from you for new writers who either uh, have have not sold a story or maybe um, haven't submitted a story yet. And I would like to get your opinion on like, what are some do's and don'ts for a new writer when they're submitting a story to to an editor? Don't give the plot. For a short story, I do not know editor, I don't think, once they know the plot of a short story. Just send the story. Mm-hmm. 
if it's a novel, of course, or a novella, then yes, you want to do a kind of a little summary, maybe a two-line, well, this is what it's about, or a bigger pitch for a novel, but you do not want to do that for a short story. So, and as far as like formatting and all that stuff, one thing you always see on Twitter or Facebook is an editor saying, oh my God, read the guidelines, guys, like, because I guess that's a, that's a huge thing, right? Well, I mean, that depends. I mean, yeah, I mean, some guidelines are, I don't have those kind of guidelines anymore, except, I mean, the year's best guide, well, for the year's best, I still get store people sending me stories here. I just, I haven't published this yet. Would you look at this? It's like, read the guidelines. It's reprint anthology only, you know, and that's when I get cranky and I start writing really nasty things in <laughs> Facebook. I, 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 I try, I do never name the, <clears throat> the person who does it. But boy, am I furious and pissed off. And it's like, stop it. You know, read the goddamn guidelines. Right. If there's one thing I know about Ellen Dattle, I would never send Ellen a PDF. Oh, God, I hate PDFs. I mean, I get them as, <laughs> I, unfortunately, I get them as magazines for magazines sometimes. And I really, I mean, unless there are some people, there are some PDFs that are interactive, that you get a table uh-huh. of contents and you can go to eat. I don't know. I assume it's a skill that it's something you just set up the way you, that, happens and it's perfect if i can right, move from right. story to story in a collection or an anthology or a magazine on a pdf then that's fine but the fact of the matter is when you don't when you can't then you have to go all the way back to the beginning to find the damn story you know that's looking for and it's when i'm reading on um, a kindle or something it or even my desktop it's like really an aggravating that's why i don't like pdfs and it's for individual stories no i never want to see an individual story as a pdf ever ever, ever. <laughs> right and one of the things that you, I remember you mentioning, um, which I think is a good tip for writers, was something that I, you know, hadn't thought about previously until I saw you you mention it, is um, when you have a story collection, you know, make sure that in your on your copyright page that you list all the the copyrights for every story, right? Oh, it's very frustrating when people don't have the first publication because then I have to ask. So because I'm. Only looking for the stories that come out in the year I'm reading for. I may have right. missed something from 10 years ago, but it's too late. And I don't have time to read collections, the whole collection. I just have time maybe to look at it quickly. So, oh, yeah, I know that story because I gave it an honorable mention 10 years ago. But basically, I only read the new stuff. I only want to read what's out that year. Um, I was going to say something about formatting. I mean, I prefer reading, well, I mean, this is for manuscripts and stuff. I mean, I prefer reading in Times Roman. Right. <laughs> and, uh, oh, one thing, okay, this is something that people from different countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and England, or UK, these days, when I edit a book, an anthology, or a magazine, I keep the punctuation and usage of the originating country or where the story is taking place. I mean, for example, Priya Sharma, who's British, sent me a story for uh, Nightmare Carnival. And I think she did British spelling, but I said, no, it takes place in America. You have to do American spelling and American usage. But, you know, so, I mean, in the past, everything in the States had to be Americanized. These days, I demand, I refuse to do that. I will not let things be Americanized unless it takes place in America. Sorry if there's a uh, confusing term that can't be explained through context. I will ask the, the author to somehow either give context to it or use a different word. Yeah, that's interesting because I recently, I have a story coming out in a British anthology mm-hmm. and they actually changed, and the story takes place in the United States, but they actually changed some of my words to match British 
spelling. You know, they put the U's in the color kind of thing, which I thought was interesting. I didn't care, but I thought it was interesting that they that they bothered to do that. So well, we- that happens less now these days. The the big problem, of course, is quote marks. <clears throat> I mean, I never really noticed, but I mean, in England, there's quotes are single. Interesting. And in America, they're double. And um, I don't know what they are in Australia because everyone sends me double quotes. But, you know, I don't I, either. So, someone's going to have to fix that. And I can't do it because I don't know. If you do a search and replace, you're going to get a lot of apostrophes, double apostrophes. Yeah. So you can't do it that way. I assume there must be an actual easy way to reformat your manuscript. So it goes from single quote to double quote or double quote to single quote, but I don't know what it is. So I make the author do it. <laughs> I said, please, because I don't want to make my poor publisher to do it. The production is going to have to do it or someone's going to have to do it because that has to be consistent. Man, I did not. I this, That is something I have learned uh, today. That's a, not something I ever knew was that the uh, quote marks are single in England. Well, I, only know, I don't even notice it all the time. And then suddenly I notice, oh, wait a minute. These are single quotes. Um, that's no good. It has to be double quotes. <laughs> How do you feel about, and I don't want to overstate it, but I, I say, I'll say, um, you know, the more more experimental uh, fiction, like and, and, as entries, because, and what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, for example, you'll see a lot, I'm not quite saying, let's talk about, you know, the recognitions, but more along, you know, but more along the lines of like, if somebody doesn't use quotes for their dialogue, which you see a lot, or they use hyphens at the beginning of every sentence. Okay. This is my, my personal philosophy about experimental fiction. If I don't notice it, it's fine. If it no, if I notice it and it impedes my reading, it's not fine. So, well, if you, you'll notice that when you open the book, but, but you're saying as you read, if it becomes a hindrance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I think I'm guessing, I mean, I suppose you could train yourself to read it and not be bothered by it. I mean, because, okay, now I, there was a story, a book decades ago by Carrie Hume of New Zealand called The Bone People. I don't remember that much about it, but I loved it. She died recently, I think. Um, she won an award for the book. And it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And it was experimental, but I don't remember how because I don't, it didn't bother me. Whatever, whatever she did, it was, it was definitely using a different um, formatting or something that I wasn't used to. No, I'm like okay, Daniel Daniel Lusky, uh, however you pronounce his name, you know. Daniel Lusky, yeah, that's that's correct. I think that Z is silent or whatever. And I'm blanking on the title of the book, Blue. Some, I mean, he's famous for it. It's the one he's famous for, and it's a ghost story. And uh, he uses different color inks. Oh, you're talking about House of Leaves. Yes, thank you. Why did you're I call welcome. It? Because of the House of Blue Leaves with John Quare. That's why. Yes, <laughs> yeah. House of Leaves. But anyway, I actually found the footnotes more interesting than the story it's, than the text. <laughs> the footnotes were great. Um, but, you know, that didn't bother me, but it also didn't grab me. So it was a combination that I found it fascinating, but I didn't find it as involving as it could have been. The only thing I didn't like about it was I had to, you getting tired and you're reading in bed and, and then you find yourself turning the book upside down so you can read the stupid thing. And I was like, this is too much, too right. much work. Yeah. But, um, and I, the only modern author I can think of who does some, and I don't know if experimental is the right word, but who pushes things a little bit on that side is Paul Tremblay. He, he does some funky things with spacing and, I never noticed. Yeah, it. there you go. I mean, so I guess yeah, good. And he does, you know, he does things where he crosses out, or you know, he's like he cancels out phrasing. Oh well, he did that for the story. Uh, the lemonade, lemonade yeah, lemonade. yeah, and he'll do things with he'll do things with spacing and stuff. But that's not weird to me. I mean, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, Gemma Files has done that. It does. It is de- 
terrible when it comes to production because they always fuck it up. Excuse me. I don't know if I can say that. The F-bomb. Go for it. But um, I don't remember which story it was by her that I had. And each iteration, it got screwed up. I don't even know if it ended up correct. Yeah. Um, but that's the problem. If you want to write something in a weird format, you have to really carefully reread it in every iteration you get, every arc, every page proof, everything. I, I just got an early Tremblay book after I spoke with Paul last week. And and I noticed that I don't remember. I'm not going to remember the name of it. But he had a really early book where you had to have a yellow highlighter and you would read the book. And then at certain points in the book, you would have to, you would have to use the yellow highlighter to reveal parts of the text. Oh, how funny. It was a, yeah, I just bought it. What was the title of that? I don't remember that one. You can still get it. It's on, I got it on Amazon. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but, but then I have, then of course I have my old thing where I'm like, well, I can't write in a book. (laughs) I want to ask you a couple more things before we before I let you go because I, I think some writers will want to know some of this information if you if you have it at your fingertips. Which is what's a so if you're talking to a new writer, if you're in a if you're in a classroom with twenty new writers and the, someone raises their hand and says, "How can a new writer get the attention of a great editor?" Uh, what would your answer be? Write really great stuff. <laughs> right. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, send, and keep sending it out. A few basic things. You write something, you send it out. Don't sit around and wait for an answer. Write your next thing and do the same thing. Write it, write it, send it out to different publisher, to different magazines or whatever, and then write your next thing. You know, don't just sit around waiting to hear back. The other thing I always tell my writing students, cannibalize, cannibalize, cannibalize. If something doesn't work, if a, if a book, if, a, if, a, if you're working on a manuscript and you're stuck or everyone rejects it and it turns out it's crap, don't throw it out. Use pieces of it. You can always reuse bits and pieces and other things over the years. So don't throw anything out. And when you acquire for Tor, how many novellas are you um, approximately, are you acquiring these days for Tor? Because I know that's, it, that's something that started recently, right? Well, yeah. it totally varies. It, it, it's not, uh. I'm not required to do anything. Um, it's, I have four coming out this year. But, um, you know, last year I had one. Cassandra Cause, Nothing But Blackened Teeth. This year I have four. I have, uh, and then I woke up, which is coming out tomorrow by Malcolm Devlin. Um, then I have Rosebud by Paul Cornell, which is science fiction space opera, kind of. And then I have um, High Times in, low, in the Low Parliament by Kelly Robeson, which is coming out during the summer in a few months. And uh, The Lucky Girl, a Krampus story, how I became, or how I became a horror writer, a Krampus story by M. Rickert, which is coming out later this year that's a horror novella i have one that's coming another that's coming out wild spaces by cl cooney coney sorry which is terrific and and i'm waiting for another one that we commissioned to come in so you know, it just varies well before i let you go because we're way over but this has been such a great conversation i just wanted to ask you other um outside of Outside of Ellen Datlow anthologies, what are one or two anthologies that you really admire or that you would maybe recommend people read? Um, Mark Morris's unthemed anthologies are really good. The ones for Flame Tree? Yeah, the now well now they're flame. They were for Titan, and now they're Flame Tree. Yes, they're. I'm, I think his are pretty damn good. I'm very impressed by them. And Uncertainties, which comes out, I guess once a year. Um, I, you know, I, I like that on a regular basis. I'm not familiar with that one. I'll have to look. It's uh, is it available on, like on Amazon and is it just a? C- I don't know. Uh, hold on, I'm, it's an annual, and I'm trying to remember who. 
Oh, Brian Showers. It's from Swan River. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Swan River Press. And, and uh, Uncertainties 5 came out last year, and I assume number six will come out this year. They're more weird. I mean, the thing is, a lot of them are weird versus horror. You know, a lot of them are mixed. I consider them mixed genre because they're not out and out horror. Or some of the stories are, but many of them aren't. So it's kind of a mix. Yeah, they're, I think they're in... I think they're in Ireland, maybe. Oh, yes. Swan yeah. River Press. Yeah, Brian Chow. Yeah, they do beautiful Ireland. books, yes. too. That- hey, there's a green book, um, which is always nonfiction, mostly about Irish writers. Oh, right. Yeah, I think I've yeah. seen that as well. All right. Well, Alan, I really appreciate you taking time to being here. I want to talk to you again at some point, because maybe I would just love to have spend 30 minutes with you talking about the editing process, because I think that would be such a great conversation to have for for up and coming editors and stuff like that. But thank you for being here. I appreciate you being on The Dark Word. And hopefully uh, this conversation helped a lot of uh, writers and uh, future anthologists. And best of luck with everything. And we'll, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Most podcasts are awful. Most news is noise. What you need in your ears is real news. Narrated. You need Audio Hopper. Human narrations of the most compelling news, culture, and entertainment stories. You choose the topics and the publications. Audio Hopper gives you a commercial-free straight read of the story. Read by real voice actors, not annoying computer voice simulators. Get a variety of points of view and real news. Audio Hopper. Real news narrated. In the App Store.